Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. We want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Healing Insight. Healing Insight is an acupuncture and holistic medicine clinic on Grand Avenue in St. Paul, Minnesota. Owner Senya May and her team of practitioners can help patients with everything from anxiety to fatigue, digestive issues to women's health, and so much more. And we are living through such an uncertain time. Many of us are dealing with a level of stress and anxiety that we've just never seen before. And the team at Healing Insight is here to help. You know, stress takes its toll on our adrenals. And Senia can do a free phone consultation to see if virtual adrenal testing is right for you. Senia and her team are doing Facebook Live videos twice a week and personalized virtual appointments. So whether you're comfortable coming in in person or want to connect virtually, Healing Insight wants you to know they're here to take care of you. I've personally been seeing Senia for several years. I'm now part of her membership program, which means I have a standing monthly appointment. Senia was also our featured guest on one of our most listened to episodes of Best to the Nest. It's episode 25, simply titled Anxiety, and in episode 113, where we talk about coping with the COVID-19 global pandemic. Visit HealingInsight.com. That's HealingInsight.com to find out more about Senya and her team. I'm Elizabeth Reese. I'm Marjorie Punnett. And this is Best to the Nest, the podcast that is all about creating strong, comfortable, beautiful nests that prepare us to fly. Marjorie Punnett, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I, I don't even know what day of quarantine we're in, but um, <laughs> I know that it's been really, really nice to be home. And I think what's making a difference for so many people, judging by the fact that most grocery stores have sold out of flour, is people are baking People are totally baking. I just had my fifth loaf of sourdough come out of the oven this morning. I've been doing sourdough waffles, sourdough muffins, oh. and um, and some of that, too. A lot of people are doing sourdough because people can't find yeast at the grocery stores. But right. we are talking about a great bake today. That is the theme of the show. And we're bringing in a wonderful baker with a really unique perspective to talk about it. And I know that you're going to love this woman. But I I wanted to ask you, Marjorie, about baking in your home. Like, do you, you do you remember your mom didn't cook a ton? Do you remember baking growing up? Did you bake with the boys? She did not. I don't remember her baking much. I did bake with the boys. But I mean, when I say I baked, it was pretty easy stuff. But I used to love making lo- like loaves and muffins. And yeah. so I would, because that was just another one of the ways other than the smoothies, which I had garbanzo beans. That was one of the ways that I would Weird. get a lot of nutrition packed into things. So zucchini carrot muffins with walnuts, stuff For like sure. that. I used to love making that kind of stuff because it's easy. I mean, and sometimes I would make it from scratch, but sometimes I would just take a mix and then add a ton of stuff. But I think I made, I think I sent you a picture. So I was reading somewhere, I think it was in the New York Times where they said the baked goods 
good of the pandemic is banana bread. It is. Like, it totally is. It's the most searched for <laughs> recipe nationally right now. <laughs> right. That everybody's baking banana bread. So I thought, I'm going to make it from scratch. I made it from scratch. And Elizabeth, it's the first time in my life ever that I followed the directions perfectly by using separate mixing bowls. Yes. Because you know me. I'm impulsive. It's like, why three bowls? Really? Three bowls? And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to follow the recipe. And I used, like, you had to, like, mix some of the dry stuff together and then some of the eggs and other stuff together. So I used the three separate bowls. I honestly don't think it tasted any different, but this is also why I'm not a great baker. Well, that I think just getting into it and doing it is really important. I remember my mom baked from scratch all the time when I was a kid. I don't remember I don't remember like a lot of packaged cookie things unless my dad right. was going to the grocery store because he would just like buy Oreos, but my mom was all about <laughs> baking it from scratch and particularly I remember two specific things. There was a time when she started doing a job share. So she was home on Wednesdays when we got home from school every Wednesday. And it was like the day we looked forward to the most because she would ask us what we wanted for dinner that night. And then she would make it during the day. And she would often have fresh baked bread or her southern biscuits with butter and honey waiting for us when we got home from school. Oh, that's And I distinctively remember walking in the door and I remember the smell and I remember her getting the honey out and just loading butter on and it feeling like the most comforting thing. And back then she had like a bread machine. She would put like the dough in there and mix it. But then the biscuits she would do by hand always. And she was very specific about them. She's a Texas woman. So she was very specific (laughs) about her biscuits, which she still is and she still makes them. But I do think there's something really beautiful about making baked goods, sharing them, spending time in bakeries. It's like it's like a cozy sweater that just wraps oh, you up any absolutely. time of year. And I would I would add to that a cashmere sweater. Oh, girl, I like the way you're going. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Especially when you get involved with like a croissant or something, then you're oh, totally yeah. in cashmere land. <laughs> you're in cashmere. <laughs> okay, so let's introduce our wonderful guest. Her name is Ava Sabet, and I've known Ava for several years now, and every time I encounter her... I feel better after the time I've spent with her. And it really is just like, and those are the people that I love to bring on the podcast because I just think I just want to spend more time with them. So Ava is Swedish and she is the owner of this beautiful little charming, wonderful bakery in Anoka, Minnesota called Swedish Crown Bakery. She makes amazing things, but she also has a really unique perspective on her baked goods, which I love, which is her Swedish heritage, and then also looking at baking a little bit more holistically in terms of just some cleaner ingredients that sometimes in America we don't have and don't use, right? So her baking perspective is fantastic, and her baked goods, Marjorie, are over the top oh, good. And it I'll, just has that like Scandinavian feel which you love so much. Right? I'll take a I'll take a road trip to uh, Anoka. That's yeah. no problem. No kidding. Me too. So, we want to welcome Ava Sabet to Best to the Nest so that we can talk all about baking. Ava, hello friend. Hi Elizabeth and hi Marjorie. Good morning. Nice to meet you. <laughs> good morning. Nice to meet you as well. Thank you so much for all the wonderful compliments. My god, I almost teared up. <laughs> that was wonderful. <laughs> 
Well, we are so happy that you're here. And you know, I just love baking with you. I've gotten to come to Swedish Crown Bakery several times and bake with Ava in the bakery and then when she's in the Twin Cities Live studio. So Ava, let's talk about your sort of baking heritage and why baking is so ingrained in Swedish culture and like the particular pastries and breads and treats that you'll have for certain holidays, certain times of day. There's just like all these wonderful traditions. Yes, absolutely. So Sweden has always been very rich in in baking culture. And and growing up back then, of course, in in the 70s, 80s, there was no cell phones. So we just ran home after school and we started baking and we baked all kinds of things. Cinnamon buns was something that most girls Mm. and boys knew how to make. Uh, We made chocolate balls. We made little... They're called, I don't even know how to translate them, called chabeluder in Swedish. It's like a little puffy pancake. Then we dip them in sugar. And so it was It was very focused around food. And also in school, from I think it was third grade starting, we would have cooking classes and baking classes. So just something that naturally, I think, was in there for, for us when we were growing up. So I think still most of my friends that are my generation, they still cook a lot and bake a lot at home. Eva, do you know if in Sweden, do they still have cooking classes starting, cooking and baking classes starting in about in around third grade? Do they still uh, do that? I am not sure if they still do, because I know that a lot of things has changed. We used to do sewing right. classes and woodwork classes too, so I'm not yeah. sure that's not still there. But I can find out that. That's a good question, yeah. actually. Well, I just love that. I love that idea. And I wish, even if they can't do the woodworking and the sewing, I wish that schools would bring in cooking and baking. Because I honestly believe, especially for like an eight-year-old, it teaches so much because it teaches math for sure. It teaches a little bit of chemistry Mm -hmm. and it teaches following directions. And I think all of those things for an eight-year-old are really important tools for being a lifelong learner. So I just, I love that that was a part of the culture then, because that certainly, I don't think, Elizabeth, you didn't have cooking classes in third grade, did you? No, but in, we had home ec and we had industrial tech where we did woodworking and we didn't really, so we did a little bit of sewing and I remember that and I, I have felt since, you know, that was in the 80s, right. that it is, I believe it is a full out tragedy to remove those things from yeah. school. I yeah. think having those things in school is not just, that's not a luxury to me. That is 100% an essential. All of those elements, learning to work with your hands. And then you're totally right, Marjorie, what that translate, translates into in terms of traditional subjects. It's like, well, of course you should have those things in schools because- mm-hmm. It's just, it's better than a math class. I actually just had a math expert that I talked to. I interviewed for Twin Cities Live recently. He said the best thing you can be doing with your kids when you are home right now with them is cooking and baking right. because the measuring and following the recipes and basically solving problems all the time, adding things up, fractions. He said, right. it's the number one thing that you can do. Stop putting pressure on yourself with all these math worksheets and just start cooking and baking with your kids. Right. Because in order to know two thirds, to really understand two thirds, a kid will understand two thirds of a cup of sugar if they're yeah. pouring it into a measuring cup. If you yeah, visualize it, it's perfect. Yeah. That's great. That's really cool. Eva. <laughs> So, yes, Ava, yes. then you you came to the U.S., mm-hmm. and that was because you fell in love, right? Wasn't that? Yes, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the guys, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> he actually, when he approached me, and I 
kind of saw and heard that he was not from Sweden. I was not really interested of dating somebody that wasn't from Sweden because I, I just wanted to kind of settle down. And he's like, no, I live here in Sweden now. I was like, okay, then we can go on a date. And then after <laughs> eight months, he's like, I'm going to move back. Do you want to come with me? And I said, sure. So yeah, that's how I ended up here in Anoka in the U- Minnesota. Well, we are happy that you're here. And <laughs> and I know that then there was a point where you realized that you just couldn't find the flavors of home here. And you thought, I'm going to start making them then. Yeah. So I, I remember I was really depressed because of the food, actually, because it was like you said, it was so hard to find things. And I found finally fresh yeast at Byerly's. And I remember it was $4.69 for a little piece of yeast. And it was I found it so expensive. And I was like, wow. Uh, and it was hard back then. Cheese and butter wasn't as good high quality and definitely not bread in 2005 as it is today. Now we have so many places in Wisconsin making beautiful cheeses and a lot of great bakeries making wonderful bread. And I remember Rustica was the only place that and Wedge that made a really good bread. Yeah. But so we felt like we can't travel every time 30 miles to get a bread. So I told Fari, I said... Maybe we should open up a bakery. And I realized that when I was starting to sell my baked stuff at a farmer's market. And there was a big outcry for the Scandinavian background, and we always sold out. So that's how the idea was born also. And this is why I love farmer's markets. I think it's the greatest little incubator for people who want to try out what their specialty is without investing in a storefront. I know so many great companies that have come out of really successful companies and then mortar, you know, brick and mortar places that come out of those farmers markets. So I'm glad you're one of the success stories. Thank you. And then of course we hit a global pandemic, Ava, which is not making business easy for anybody. So we would be remiss if we didn't ask you how the bakery is doing. I know you're doing curbside and takeout and you have such a loyal customer base. Yes, uh, thank you for asking that question. Yes, actually we do. We're very, we feel very humbled and very lucky to still be somewhat thriving right now. I cannot say what the secret is. I think one of the key elements is size. So if you're too big, it's hard to to be able to maybe maintain open because of all the expenses. If you're too small, maybe just one or two people, then it's also hard if you have a lot of customers you can't keep up. And I have to say, I'm pretty exhausted right now because we uh, we are busier than I thought we would be. And right now, we also added in lunch because we felt like people need to eat more of regular foods than just sweets and pastries. And so, yeah, I've been cooking and baking, and it's it's been it's been a ride, and it's fun, and I love it. And we we yeah, we feel really blessed to still be able to keep open during this time. No question oh, about I it. I love that. I'd love that for you because I know so many people are struggling, but that speaks to the loyalty of your customers and obviously your hard work. And I think that's really interesting. I think you're exactly right about the size of the company. There are restaurants that have proven to be nimble in all of this, Mm -hmm. but I know from the restaurateurs that I know, the ones that are thriving – it's a lot of work. It's been very hard work to get through this time. Well, it's it's definitely interesting. I mean, it's 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 a different stress than before because then we had the outside stress also, and not stress, but there's so much that would call us, right? Oh, I have to do this after work. I have to do that after work, and I'm working. But now it's like there's not much going on after work, so you <laughs> you're pouring in all of yourself into the business. So there's a certain beauty of it too. So, I mean, but our hearts, I mean, my heart was aching for two weeks for 
all these dreams and 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 people's beautiful wishes that they put into their places and, and money and, and then not being able to continue. I mean, that was a very sad and still is sad story. So we hope and pray that soon they'll be able to open up. Yeah, yes. I think you're so right. And, that, and how you just express how we're all feeling, which is like that heartache, but then also seeing some of the really beautiful things about what I keep calling the great American slowdown that isn't mm-hmm. getting, it's not catching on. No one, no one else is saying it. It's just me saying it, but I think <laughs> the, great, the great American slowdown is, is what I'm calling it and seeing all the wonderful things that come from that too. Um, but I do stick think with it, baking, Elizabeth. Stick with know, it. Stick with it. I'm going to keep on it. The baking at home is something though that is so interesting to see. And, and Ava, I wonder your perspective on that, on that return, because if this is something that's in our roots and I think in other countries, it's probably still a little bit more at the forefront than it is here in America, but it's still within us. And that instinct to get our hands into dough and to create something is within us. So what do you think happens in a home? And you can compare this to, you know, your home growing up and then your home now when you are actually baking things. There's something magical about it. Oh, definitely magical. I mean, first of all, I think that the connectedness to food itself. So you become a part of what you're making, right? Sorry, I'm going to just we're off here for a second off of the baking. But once I purchased a, an, a little octopi, octopus, and I, I'm not very big on kind of like cleaning up my own meat. I used to when I was young, but not anymore. But I had to skin off this little beautiful thing. And I remember I was talking to it and almost like feeling emotional because I felt like it became a part. We became a part of each other. So when I was making the food and eating the food, I felt blessed and thankful that this little animal had like given its life to for me to enjoy. Mm. So I think the Aww. same thing with the baking is it's it's symbiosis, right? So so whatever you put into it and like Marjorie said, you never followed the recipe before. Well, I think when people start baking, it's so important to follow the recipe because then if it fails, people give up. So it's that attention, right? It's like yep. when we paint a painting, we can't just do it in a hurry. It has to, it has to come from within. And I think, I think for me, that's the biggest part in baking at home. It's like taking your time, really wanting to succeed that the outcome is going to be exactly the way you want. And so I always encourage bakers who are new to go to your oven every two, three minutes, check on your thing, see how it's growing, see how it's looking. Why is it growing differently this time? And so the same with the proofing or overproofing, underproofing, we've all done it, but it's like checking on it. It's almost like a little baby, right? When, when we have a newborn, we go and check on our, is it breathing? Is it like, is it all right? Right. It's the same thing. It's like your little baby. Oh, I love that. And I I think that's interesting what you say about intention. I will say when I pulled out three mixing bowls and actually did it the right way, Mm -hmm. I felt like a (laughs) grown-up. I felt like I'm actually doing something a little bit more important. But that's really good advice because I would consider myself a new baker, and that's really good advice to look at following the directions I have a rebellious streak, so I have to get over that. So following the directions is about doing it with intention and wanting it to really turn out well and not to fail. I love that. That's really good. I'm going to, I'm going to follow more directions. <laughs> that connection piece is so important though that Ava talks about. I yeah. mean, yeah. it's totally true and it can seem 
I think sometimes this idea of being a foodie, right, of caring about your food, and it can, and it's like you know, mocked in Portlandia that we know where the chicken came from and right. The, right. the way that it was raised, and all of those things, and it can definitely get over the top, and it can seem at this point in time like it's very elitist. You you can only be this way and care about your food if you have money to be able to buy that type of food, but. I really believe that that should not be – it should not be something just for the upper class. It should be for everyone, that everyone should should and can feel connected to their food. And you can do that by not only choosing ingredients wisely, but then also making things yourself and then growing things yourself. I mean, those are – the key things coming together to have you feel that connection. And eating is something that we do every single day. And it's something that we're most likely to do with our family and our friends. And I just don't think the importance of it can be overstated. Oh, Even though it sounds sort of silly, it's, it's it's just not. It is what binds us together and it is what connects us and it is what keeps generations going is food. And it's what connects generations. I mean, I think that's what I've learned most of all with all of the chefs that I've interviewed is that's the beauty of it. It connects all the generations. But something you said, Elizabeth, I think is really important, too, is that idea of knowing and understanding where your food comes from. There's a program in in Phoenix, a chef in the garden. So they have in a lot of the schools because our primary agricultural season is during the school year. Mm -hmm. And so some of these schools just have these phenomenal gardens and then the chefs come in and they pick a vegetable and the kids pick it themselves and then they'll make something out of it. And that goes back to the idea of everybody deserves to know what good food tastes like. Everybody deserves to know where their food comes from, that it doesn't have to be overly precious or elite. And I think that goes back to having cooking and baking classes in the schools at a very young age, because I think that's how you begin to understand your connection and also be able to take pride in, like you said, in in making something and have it not fail, which is really cool. And even if it does fail, I mean, then you just eat it anyway or feed it to the chickens and then learn <laughs> from it. Ava, let's talk about ingredients because I am interested in this. We talk a lot about, you know, you hear about European ingredients versus American ingredients. And there are all sorts of, there's, the truth of the matter is there's all sorts of stuff that's allowed in food in the United States that is not allowed in food in the European Union at all. And I wish that we would take more of a page from the EU and be choosing ingredients accordingly. But what what was the hardest part for you moving to the US in kind of figuring out what food was good and what wasn't? And I know that you have a big interest in in holistic nutrition too. Yeah, so that's a very good question. Thank you for asking that. Uh, I do have a very sensitive palate, so I pick up on very fast on on just differences in in flavors. And so the the biggest ones for me was milk products. Uh, I think they're better today. I think like Daisy, for instance, sour cream is is fantastic, but still butter, for instance, eating at home, I only do Kerrygold. I've yet to find the butter palate wise that I feel tastes the same. So sometimes it has to do with just the procedure or the process, like butter is processed differently here than it is in Europe. I think it has to do with the churning, how they, they separate the butter fat here and then put it back versus hmm. there it's not separated. At least that's how it was like 10 years ago. I remember milk in Sweden, for instance, when you purchase your milk or in many other European countries, it was good only for a week. 
and after a week it turned bad. Well, here a yeah. milk is good for a month, which tells me it's either over pasteurized. Something is, something is modified with that product to be able to have such a long shelf life. When I came here, even even certain vegetables, I I remember I was looking at it and I was like, how is this not turning bad in my fridge after three weeks? It should be wilted and dead. So I did. I didn't always understand why it happened or why it didn't happen. And then also with meats, I remember, again, if I just take Sweden or many um, European countries, the ground beef or ground pork, for instance, you and fish and chicken would be good. Not chicken, that's two days, but fish and ground meat would be good for one day. So you put it in the fridge, you have to use it literally the same day or the next day, and then it's done. Hmm. So that just shows me the freshness of, of your fish or the freshness of whatever you go and purchase. It is so fresh that you have to use it within that day. And I think I think those are the big differences. And it also makes a difference because it pressures us as humans to use it, right? So I'm not going to overfill my fridge and then I forget about it and I toss it. It, it pressures me to use that fresh ingredient. So we can't really overbuy things. But so I think... The quality is something that was very hard for me, meaning like the freshness quality. Mm-hmm. So I had to literally just test and test and test and test until I found things that I felt was close enough. Or maybe sometimes even I would say safe enough for me. Safe meaning like that my body felt okay to eat it. Because I do think when something is not just only overprocessed, but if, if, like you said, Elizabeth, if it's coming from a small farm, it's been handled differently, or my little octopi that came out of the ocean, it's been, it's been handled differently than putting thousands of cows in a slaughterhouse and then all that fear and how they're handled is, is not even, I think, clean. I mean, I can't even imagine what's going on in there. And then we put that in our bodies. It's going to be very different from something that has been made in small quantities. And the same goes back to to bakeries or, or other restaurants when we prepare it in small quantities. Or if you do it at home, that connectedness is very different from something that's been mass produced. So I think that was the challenging part and still can be challenging for me. But I have to say now with the pandemic, I have to loosen like my mind. I have to let go because sometimes we don't even find certain ingredients that we need. So I have to just let go of that notion of, oh, it has to be this or it has to be that. And so when I'm cooking with it and it's not up to my standards per se, I still try to put in that love and intention that this food will still be beautiful and good. So I think still we can somehow transform even if we don't have the exact ingredients that we need. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, thank you. I was um I was talking to my neighbor yesterday and she was saying we were sort of talking from a social distance. Mm-hmm. We were talking mm-hmm. about what we'll take away when all this is over. And she said that she feels like she's has a new appreciation for buying things close from home. Mm-hmm. So really that the local bakery or meat, and I'm in Kansas right now, so meat that's from Kansas. And I'm hoping that for a lot of people, that idea of making sure that 
your just because I think people are hyper aware of supply chain now of where things come from, of maybe there'll be a heightened awareness of really supporting your local bakery, if you have a butcher, a local butcher, things like that, even though sometimes, again, it goes back to what you were talking about, Elizabeth, is it can be a little bit more expensive. But at the same time, I think if more people do that, that should sort of with supply and demand maybe drive down the price a little bit. But And I don't think as Americans, if, if we do that so much because it's what we've always known. I think you know, I, and, and so I think that's a good thing to always sort of keep in our mind as well. But I don't think about it as much in baking. Like when I think about flour, I don't think I think enough about that. So when you get your flour and those ingredients, where are you getting those? Well, we order the flour through a supplier, but I was very particular and still am with all distributors. And some of them actually gave up on me because I... I always look at the ingredients that it's clean. So we made sure that we found a flour that is not bleached, it's not bromated, it's not enriched, uh, or we have organic flour too. So, it, And I mean, there are cleaner flours out there. There's definitely local flours here in the cities too. Um, right. But it's learning to, to bake with them or relearning to how to bake with them. So yeah, I'm, I'm just very particular what makes it into the bakery. So whoever is working with us, we make sure to to ask them all the questions before it comes in. And if I notice something is uh, having ingredients that I don't agree with, then we send it back or we just don't order it again. So I'm very, very, very picky with, with all the ingredients. And I just wanted to mention, Marjorie, to a point that you were saying that if we buy things locally, it might be a little bit more expensive. But I think also the beauty of that is, again, we will appreciate it more and maybe not overbuy, right? So yes. if a croissant is $4 versus a donut, $1, well, maybe we'll just savor it yum and it was good and it was satisfying versus just like cramming it in. I think you're body. so right. My sister and I were just talking this weekend and she said, I can't believe that a croissant is is only three dollars, and mm-hmm. I was like, I know they should be charging thirty dollars. They are <laughs> so much work. I mean, and if you're using really good ingredients, it's so much work. And this this conversation stemmed from the sourdough. She was like, How can you buy a loaf of sourdough for six dollars with all the work that you're doing? And I was like, I don't know. I feel like I'm putting six hundred dollars worth of work into this <laughs> loaf of sourdough. True. It is amazing, and we have come to expect cheap food and and we have completely detached ourselves from how it's made and what's in it and we've allowed industrialized food systems to completely take over and that's a big problem it's a big problem for a myriad of reasons but it is also very sad and i think you're totally right ava it allows us to just if we were actually paying what food is worth you will understand why it's important to take care of it and respect it and not just let it sit in the fridge and die and then have to just toss it out. I just, I think, I so, so believe to my core that a deeper connection to our food will solve so many problems in the world. I think it will solve problems in terms of the environment, in terms of our health, in terms of our mental health, our wellness, our healthcare systems, all of these things. But you have to, you're fighting, you know, you're a little fish swimming upstream against these big industrial food systems that don't want change. But I think, I think change is coming. Yeah. I mean, I think more than ever. Well, it's unsustainable the way that we've lived. Pardon me? 
it's unsustainable the way that we've lived. Right. But I think there's there there's definitely more of an awareness. I, I really believe this. I don't have anything I don't have any data to back this up. I just think in the last ten years, there's there's a much bigger awareness of I think with especially young mothers of this generation, what are we feeding our kids? What are they eating? I, I'm I think it's a small but mighty army that's that's fighting this battle, but at least people are talking about it much more than they used to. I think you're right. I think it's still something that's just, you know, in a lot of cases still reserved for white upper class people though, that is unfortunate because we just still have these urban food deserts and we have all of these we have all of these problems with access to great food. But I do think you're right that there are more and more people, and particularly now that I think are paying attention to it and kind of going, wait a second, I want to have a relationship with a farmer. I've had more people on Instagram message me and say, hey, what's the farm that you get your pork from again? Where can I get pasture-raised chickens? Oh, I'm just, I'm placing an order because they want to have a direct relationship with their food producer so that they have a better sense of food security. Well, I definitely want a personal relationship with my baker and bakery. So. <laughs> <laughs> that is I wish I lived in Anoka. Good. Oh, thank so, you. So, <laughs> Ava, I do want to make sure that we talk about as people are baking, and, and you've touched on a couple of these things throughout our conversation today, but I want to make sure that people get a little bit of your knowledge in terms of your tricks to making sure that things turn out and to really enjoying the process of baking. Like, you know, and, and again, you've talked about some of these, but what are your what are your top priorities when it comes to ensuring that baked goods and food, food in general turns out the way that you want it to? Well, first of all, my my absolute motto that I had with me the whole life, my whole life is never give up. So you have to go in with it. Okay. I am going to succeed, but even if I don't succeed, I'm going to do it again and again and again. So have a lot of time. Don't go into it stressed, especially if it's something new. You have to have time set aside for it. Make sure you have all the ingredients. Again, because we, if somebody's a new baker, we can't, or even cooking, but we can't substitute with something else and think, oh, yeah, it'll turn out because most likely it won't. Yeah. And so <laughs> I tried it and, and most of the time it doesn't work. And then be meticulous. Like even me, myself, I go over my recipes. Still, even if I know the recipe in my head, I still go over it two, three times to ensure everything is in there, that I put the salt in there, that I put the sugar in there. And then I have to encourage everybody to have a scale. I think scale is the best thing to have. Now, not all recipes are going to be in ounces or, or grams, but... If they are, then a scale is very, very helpful because it makes it more accurate. And this, of course, if you're just going to bake with your children, you don't need a scale. But if somebody wants to take this seriously to the next level, it is definitely, definitely helpful to have a scale. It just makes it easier. Then we have the bakers that just throw things in there and still makes makes things happen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can, I mean, I've seen it with my own eyes. We've had bakers. They never, he never scaled. He was Mexican. He never scaled the bread. He just did it all by by measuring. I can do that sometimes too, but I think for a new baker, just follow the recipe. Another thing that I highly recommend when looking at a recipe online, don't grab the first two, three recipes that pop up. I noticed that the most popular ones usually are going to be the most easy ones, but also the least, least tasty or least, I don't even know how to say it. It's like they're just thrown together in a haste and, and, People just always grab the top three ones. 
use keywords, the most moist cupcake, the most oh. um, soft cupcake, and then research it and look at it. And now, of course, that needs a little skill, but I research any recipe for at least half an hour to make sure that I pick the best one. Yeah. Um, that's so it's great worth your advice. time and it's worth your money and it's worth your ingredients. Correct, correct. And yeah, I think those are the those are the base, basic things and again, I need to emphasize, check, be there. Don't trust your machine that oh, it's whipping it. What if it's not whipping it correctly? I may I might have to scrape down the edges. Like be there with your baby all along. <laughs> and taste it and have a spoon. This is something I see even bakers, they don't taste it. They, they have no idea how dough tastes like. Well, I was like, well, you have to taste the dough. What if you didn't put the salt in there? Or you have to right. taste the dough. Is the yeast in there? Is is the sourdough fermented enough? Smell it, smell it, taste it, taste it, look at it. And your sourdough will look different from time to time. Why is that? And then you're going to learn why it is looking now is too warm. So maybe that's why it it proved faster than last time. So it kind of tells you a story. So yeah, your spoon and your eyes and your touch, the feel, those are definitely your best tools that you can have in baking. Oh, it's so good. It, it, do you see why she's so good, Marjorie? She's I do. my favorite little Swedish baker. I just adore <laughs> Ava Sebet. Ava, what oh, was you. the first thing you baked that you thought that you can remember thinking, this was successful, this tastes so good? What was the first thing that you sort of felt like you had crossed the finish line and done it just perfectly? Do you remember? And I, how old were you? I started cooking very often at 11, and I started baking daily when I was 13. Drove my mom okay. nuts because the kitchen <laughs> was filled always. I pretty fast mastered a orange bundt cake, which was literally, and I, I lost the recipe, but you put all the ingredients, every single thing into the bowl and you just mixed it. And it was the most moist thing, but I still, that's not my success story. My success story I feel is I was going to make creme caramel, which is similar to creme brulee, but it has a caramel sauce in the bottom. Oh, yeah. And it was like seven at night and school next day. I didn't care. So I started making it. It collapsed, totally collapsed. It just came out like a runny thing. And now it's 9.30 and I'm like making the second batch, collapsed again. And my mom is like, honey, you got to go to bed. I was like, I don't care. I'm going to make this happen. And the third batch, bam. And it was midnight. And I was like, yes, I made it. I've never made it since, but I made it. And I was so happy. And I was oh my 14. Gosh. I was 14, I think. Oh, oh that's Ava, wonderful. you are so good. Listen, you've got to go and um and get Ava's treats. If I can just make a personal recommendation, her Swedish princess cake, it's like the best cake I've ever had. It is so wonderful. It's the traditional princess tort. She does the marzipan and it's beautiful and it's delicious and it's got raspberries in it and it'll oh. just make you cry. Um anything <laughs> involving anything almond or cardamom eat it at Swedish Crown Bakery because it will just make you feel like you're in Scandinavia. Oh. And and then you can really, I mean, you can just hear how Ava talks about food. That is what she puts into her 
baked goods and your perspective is so why I wanted to talk to you on oh, Best of the Nest. You. I think so this is so good, Ava. I love you and I just can't wait to bake with you again. Oh, thank you, you too. I love you guys and thank you so much for having me and have a wonderful day and this was so much fun. Thank you guys. Oh, so good. It was. It was. Thank you. If you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a review at Apple Podcasts. So we have a review from Min Listen Net. She wrote, this is one of my favorite podcasts. I enjoy the range of topics and both voices. I especially like how the focus is on living and building a beautiful home and family instead of dieting. Isn't that the truth today? That's the truth. And love the stories about UW as a fellow UW and Celery Hall grad. Am I pronouncing that correctly, Celery Elizabeth? Hall, that was my dorm. Celery 9B on Wisconsin, everybody. Go Badgers. Boy, that feels go. good to get out there. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Best to the Nest or go to besttothenest.com to subscribe to our newsletter. We are the podcast that brings you home. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.